Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to talk about Samuel Little, and he committed murders in 29 different cities in 19 different states, and it was over the span of 50 years. That's a long time for any profession, hobby, thing to do. Yeah, that's difficult. And just the fact that it took that long to figure out who it was as well is horrific. Yeah. And don't worry, guys, we'll get into it. But the fact that there were so many near misses with our justice system, it's one of those really great examples of this is what happens when like all the pieces don't fall into place. And also, right, technology now. A little bit of everything, I'd say. Little bit of it all. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people say that he is the luckiest criminal ever. Yes. I've seen that as well. I very much believe that because the amount of times that this guy barely got away or got caught and got released, just there's so many things and I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. So we're not going to talk about every single one of his murders because there's too many and that's disgusting in and of its own right. And we'll get into numbers in a moment. But what we are going to talk about in just a little bit is who he chose to kill. Yeah, that and unfortunately, not everyone's been identified yet either. Yeah. So let's get started. There's a lot of information to unpack. Yeah. So Little confessed to 93 murders. And we hear that number, right? And we go, okay, he confessed to 93. People like Henry Lee Lucas, he confessed to hundreds, right? That's way more. Right. What's different here is that 60 have already been identified and confirmed. Yeah, so he's not making it up for attention. This is real. He's not making it up. And it's very clear that he remembers each murder and he gives details about each and every murder. It's sick. And it's sick that he's reliving it as he's discussing it. Yeah, and we should probably say this here. His confessions are available on the FBI's website, as well as drawings he's done. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can see him talk about the murders, and he's full of glee. He's proud of himself. Proud of himself, and he's happy. And you can tell that when he gives his confessions, he's reliving it. Yeah. Well, watching the videos, too, it it makes you very angry because you're like, this guy went state to state, killing and doing whatever he wanted, and he got to live the majority of his life doing that. Yeah. And a lot of his victims were ruled overdose, accidental or undetermined or their bodies haven't been found. Yeah. And it was due to a lot of the times decomposition, I believe, because they didn't see that something had happened to them or it was hard to identify. And then based off of their lifestyles, it really wasn't questioned. Disgusting. It was just, oh, they died of an overdose or I don't know what happened. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So Little had a few different aliases. In addition to going by his name, Samuel Little, he also went by Samuel McDaniel, Samuel McDowell, Willie Mae Clifton, and Willie Lewis. Yeah, and especially that McDowell and Little one is the prime two that come up in a lot of arrest records. Mm -hmm. And it's partially the reason why it was hard to put some of his other crimes together because he had two different names, so they didn't realize it was the same person. 
I think it's fascinating the idea that someone will go like, what's your name? And then you'll tell them and they'll go, okay, you're honest and then move on. Right. Like you would think they would ask for some type of identification that would hopefully have his legal name. I would guess that they maybe did and he just didn't carry it. And so they had to book him under something. Maybe. I have no clue. But that was one of the things that when I was researching, I was like, don't you look at identification? I assume so. But again, this was back in the 80s, right? Yeah. 70s and 80s, 90s. Depending on what part of his life you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah will determine when it was and how the criminal justice system was working at that time. Oof. So let's talk a little bit about his early life. He was born in Georgia in 1940, and his mother was a sex worker and left him. And I've seen a couple different claims, too, that that's just something he decided happened to him. But also, I'm like, he doesn't seem to lie. So I don't know. Yeah. And the other thing is, is given his age... I doubt his mother or his grandparents are around to be like, wait a second, that's a lie. Right, right. So we'll get into it in a little bit, how necks come into play. But he became obsessed with women's necks starting when he was pretty young. So this is a quote from one of his interviews. He said, as a child, I got attracted to the neck. And it's strange. My dick would get hard when I was 12, 13 years old. And I would see a woman's neck like that. And she wouldn't even know it, man. My dick would get hard standing. The fuck? Yeah, I don't even know. You know, like, and he's 12 or 13 years old. And it's kind of sad in a way that no one realized at that time that he needed help and that he was already a monster. Oh, my gosh. Early 1950s. You had to be, like, literally out there killing people for someone to be like, maybe this kid isn't right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he started acting on those fetishes and fantasies. He would choke women during sex. And then when this escalated for his first murder, he said that he had had, like, strong desires to choke her. And that's why he did it. Not okay. Yeah. And so interviewers asked him whether when he was strangling someone, strangulation was his MO, whether it was an act of killing or it was like a sex act. And he said it was both. Yeah. Which like, look, I'm not going to kink shame, right? Like if you're into the choking part of that, live your truth. Don't kill people. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. Live your kinky life safely. (laughs) Consensually. He's the absolute worst. So when we say he had a long rap sheet, he's been arrested in Maryland, Ohio, Florida, Maine, Oregon, Connecticut, Colorado, Illinois, Missouri, and California. So he served a total of 10 years in prison for breaking and entering, burglary, assault and battery, assault with the intent to rob, assault with a firearm, armed robbery, assault on a police officer, solicitation of prostitution, DUI, shoplifting, theft, grand theft, possession of marijuana, unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, resisting arrest, battery, false imprisonment, assault with great bodily injury, robbery, rape, and sodomy. It's a big list. That's a big list. It's like he had a bingo card. Kind of. Like, he was getting a blackout. He did. He did. Yeah, for sure. So he was sentenced to three months for the rape, assault, and great bodily injury and robbery of Pamela Smith. She had fled and then ended up on the doorstep of a stranger. And when she was running, she was running naked with her hands bound with a cloth and an electrical cord when she actually escaped Little. Which is horrible. Yeah. They were in his car. That's kind of another thing that normally happens with them is he takes them in the car. Yeah. He had beaten, strangled, and sodomized Pamela. Little was convicted of assault with the attempt to ravish. 
What a silly name for a crime. It sounds like it's from the Victorian era, right? Very weird. So he only was sentenced to three months for this. Blink, blink, blink. Three months. Yeah. So he served three years for robbing a furniture store, but three months for the rape, assault, and great bodily injury and robbery of Pamela Smith. Look, Amanda, we do some true crime research on the show sometimes. And this is not the first time we've seen a shameful amount of time served for violence against women. Mm -hmm. And this is going to continue with him. He gets away with so much. And I feel like as he was going through all of this, he felt untouchable, right? He could do whatever he wanted. And all he was going to receive was essentially a slap on the wrist. Go to jail for a few months, have a place to live, and then get out, keep going. I mean, it's baffling. It's more egregious when you put robbery next to this like sexually violent crime and say, like, our justice system seems to care more about property than it does people. That's a problem. Yeah. And this is evidence of it. Yeah. So we've already touched on it, but what exactly was his M.O.? So it was manual strangulation. And that's also one of the harder things to identify as well. And then on top of that, he also knew the legal system pretty well because he had been around it since around age 13. It started very early. Yeah. And we haven't mentioned it, but he had a photographic memory, too. Yeah. And he was like very, very smart. So he wasn't just in it. He was also like absorbing what was happening around him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He also, like we mentioned, he moved around quite a bit. He changed his names and also... He traveled with a handy alibi witness most of the time. Super helpful. Right. And we'll talk about some of the ways that they've come up, but they would vouch for him and then he'd get away with it again. So he purposely chose people that he didn't think would be missed. So his victim pool is what's known as people who live a high risk lifestyle. So it's people who are runaways, hitchhikers or sex workers or people who are unhoused. So it's people that he would find and he would think like, nobody's going to miss these people. And it sucks that he was right. For the most part. Yes. But he is very, very purposeful in it. He says, and this is actually, this is a direct quote from him. He said, they didn't know who the hell was doing it. I would go back to the same city sometimes. Pluck me another grape. How many grapes have you all got in the vine here? Because that's what he would call people, just plucking them. And that's sad that that's what he thought of them, too. Just, there's more of them. I'll just grab one. No one will care. And what's interesting, too, is like when he describes his victims, he calls them his babies, which gives me all types of willies. Yeah. So one of the people that he killed was a Black trans woman. And I bring her up as an example because during his confessions, when you go to the FBI website, the very first confession that's up there, I watched it, of course, and I was immediately like, it felt like I had been slapped in the face, just kind of like stunned because it, it's now widely known that he preyed on marginalized communities on purpose, right? Yeah. We know this. And so his first confession on the website, at least when I had loaded it, it was for a trans woman. And he says... I murdered a trans woman. And then the Texas Ranger, who we're going to say great things about him later, he makes a transphobic comment. And it just highlights how all of this happens because they're invalidating her identity in the, the beginning of a confession. And that makes me like angry on a very intense level because it just shows like the systematic ignorance. Yeah. And continued marginalization of these communities, even by law enforcement now. Mm -hmm. So. He talked about the murder of Marianne, and he talks about where he met her, what she was wearing, 
what they did, how he murdered her. And the ranger says, so she was a black man dressed up as a black female. And you just want to slap him. And I just want to slap him. And I also want to say law enforcement needs to do better. Oh, yeah, that's a given. Yeah. Just better. All people, not just people who have your same shared experience. And mm, it makes me, I'm like trying to like channel my words eloquently here. It's understandable. Yeah. It's maddening. Little says trans woman. Yes. And then he could have let it go there. He could have been like, oh, tell me more. But instead, he had to make that comment. Yes. And it wasn't necessary. Yes. Yes. That's that's exactly right. And the serial killer should not be the more culturally appropriate person in the room. They shouldn't be setting the tone for being a decent human. So I think this is the, the best snapshot into how he got away with this for so long. He picked his victims on purpose. He even said that he did not go to rich neighborhoods and take white girls because he knew that they would be investigated. Mm-hmm. Like I'm shaking mad, right? Because that shouldn't be the world that we live in. It shouldn't, but it still continues today. It still continues today. And we're going to talk about a few different of his murders and attempted murders as we continue on. But it's really important to note that the people who we're talking about largely are the people who we have information on. Yeah. And that there's information out there on many of them, but it's not equal. Not at all. No. And you would think that for America's most prolific serial killer, there would be more. Mm -hmm. And some of it is because of their families of the missing women who pushed. Yes. Until someone took notice. Yeah. So on September 12th of 1982, a body of a beaten and bruised woman who was nude was found in a hayfield by farmers. She had only been there less than 24 hours, and she was identified as Patricia Mount based off of some old mugshots that they had. Patricia was a nomadic, unhoused woman who was spotted the night before by someone from out of town. Unbeknownst to the witness, they described the person that she had left with and the vehicle that she left in, which was a station wagon, and it matched Little's. When law enforcement interviewed Samuel Little at a Mississippi jail, he showed no remorse and he denied ever seeing Patricia. During the trial for Patricia's murder, Little admitted that he had danced with her. So what had happened when they had found the body is they found a hair and it matched Little's. And what his story ended up being is, yeah, we danced, but that's it. I didn't see her afterwards. And he got acquitted. Blows my mind. I just can't believe that he got so close here, you know, and then it's like, no, not me. I just danced with her. And I went down a rabbit hole about hair evidence. Mm -hmm. And it's not a good trail normally because hair falls off so frequently. Yeah. And you can pass it along so easily. And then also the person that you pass it to can also pass it along. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, the other part of this that I find confusing is there's a witness that says she got into a car. And were they dancing in his car? Is that where he was saying they were dancing? Because if not, then that contradicts a witness testimony. Yeah. And I want to say that witness changed a little bit during the trial. They changed what they had said. Well, and also we'll see this trend, but we're going to have witnesses that are part of the same population of people of Samuel Little's victims, right? Yeah. So they're people who are unhoused, they're sex workers, they're people who have addiction issues. And so they aren't seen as credible when they get into the stand. Exactly. Yeah. Ugh. 
So it's horrifying that if everything would have been put into the right place for this trial, he maybe would have been behind bars. I'm not saying forever, you know, not for a long time, because I don't think that they were doing everything correctly. But let's say they had. At least he would have been behind bars for a while. Yeah. And maybe it would have stopped from these additional ones. Yes. This tactic and also this luck would continue after this. His luck is actually maddening. Yeah. Yeah. No one this terrible should have this much luck. Right. Well, I watched a couple of the documentaries on him, too. And as law enforcement and all the behind the scenes people are talking about it, you see it, too, in their faces where they're like, and then this is where the ball got dropped here. This is where one of the witnesses changed their story and they couldn't use this. And you're like, how does this happen to him? Over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So in the same year that Patricia Mount was murdered, the body of Melinda Dupree was found. And it was found on October 4th in a cemetery in Mississippi. There was very little evidence because of the state of decomposition. Her family called her Mindy, and they described her as a musical prodigy. She was also a sex worker. And there was speculation that her boyfriend, who she lived with, was pimping her out. When her boyfriend reported her missing, police didn't take it seriously because they thought sex workers leave their pimps all the time. Not okay. Not okay. But ugh. So other sex workers reported the description of the person that they last saw Melinda talking to and the vehicle she got into. Both matched Little and his car. Weeks later, Samuel Little was pulled over and arrested under the alias Samuel McDowell. We mentioned that earlier. And as except a moment ago, his physical description and car matched, but police didn't connect the dots. Cold case investigators would later link Samuel Little to the case and even have the original witnesses pick him out of a lineup. However, they didn't file charges because there wasn't enough physical evidence and they didn't think that the testimony of the sex workers was enough to convict him. But you wish at least try, at least try. What if, wild notion here, just go with me. What if we treated all humans with dignity and respect, period? You mean all humans equal? Period. So there's a very, I think, relevant tweet as we talk about respect for sex workers in this episode. And it's from Dr. Eric Sprankle. Sprankle? Sprankle. 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 All right. We'll add that to our list of last names. We like it. So this is what he said. He said, if you think sex workers sell their bodies, but coal miners do not, then your view of labor is clouded by your moralistic view of sexuality. <sighs> right? Yeah. Right? I'm going to say it again because I feel like twice is very important. If you think sex workers sell their bodies, but coal miners do not, your view of labor is clouded by your moralistic views of sexuality. What is he a doctor of? Why don't we hear more from him? I think he's a psychologist. He's a psy. It's a psy D. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like, think about it, right? Like, have you ever worked food service? No. Retail? I have. Yes. Okay. Eight hours on your feet? Mm -hmm. Eight to 10. Yeah. Eight to 10. The end of that shift was painful. And if you do that for years and years and years, you are also selling your body, right? Like if you're doing labor that is physical, you are also selling your body. Mm -hmm. It's true. He also he has some replies and it says, those saying, but it's different are right. But the difference stems from the criminalization and stigmatization of the work. And the point is that all workers deserve labor rights regardless of the work. Your feelings about the work are irrelevant. Boo, 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 boo. Air cannons, right? This is a quote from 2016 that I just like stumbled across somewhere and was like, <gasps> they finally put it onto paper what I'm thinking. You just 140 characters or less, baby. You got it. Love it. Okay, so continuing on, the next attack that we're going to talk about is from September of 1984. The description of the attack is from Laurie Barris' discussion with the host of 93 Victims of Samuel Little, which was very good, very informative, definitely worth a watch. 
Yeah, it's a little series. Yeah. But per Laurie, in 1984, she was 22 years old and was working as a sex worker when Little grabbed her from behind and threw her into his car. He started to drive, and once he stopped, he began strangling her as she fought against him. This appeared to only make him fight harder. Over and over, he would strangle her until she went unconscious, then tell her to swallow because he liked it when she swallowed. And that was his, like, game that he'd play with them. Yeah, I feel dirty just saying it. Yeah, he would wait for them to be unconscious, do it again, unconscious, do it again, and then eventually they would die. Yeah, yeah. And so after doing this over and over... He pushed her out of the car because he thought she was dead. And she laid there still playing dead for over a half hour. I'm assuming scared he would come back. When she finally got up, she found a payphone and she called her friend. She called the police at the advice of her friend and gave a description of Samuel Little and his car. It makes me sad that her first call was to the friend Mm -hmm. and it wasn't let me call the police for help. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me sad just imagining how she must have felt that no one was going to help her other than her friend. Well, and I think it kind of like highlights the fact that she knew what the police thought about her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and her interviews, too, are heart-wrenching when she discusses what happened to her. And for one of the interviews, too, they brought her back to the scene. And I feel like she wanted to just, like, overcome what had happened to her. Yeah. But you see it in her face, and it makes you really feel for her. Yeah. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. A police trainee, his name's Wayne Spees, was working the graveyard shift. And he decided, because they had some time, to take a drive out to the spot where Lori had said the attack occurred. And again, he's a trainee. He's just like, let's see if someone's here. Maybe someone will come back. Upon arriving to this area, which was isolated, there was a car there. There was someone there. And what Spees saw is a man with bloody scratches on his neck without his pants on, jump out of the car. And the car, by the way, matched the description that Lori had given. And he he's kind of like fiddling with his pants and putting them back on. The bravado of returning again, mind-blowing. Again, untouchable. He just felt like, I'm just going to get away with it. It's fine. I'll do what I want. Yeah. So the man that got out of the car starts talking to the police officers, right? And what he says is, oh, so sorry. Uh, I had a fight with my wife and we- we're making up or something along those lines, right? Also, just as a general note right here, in the history of America, a relatively recent notion that you can rape your wife. Because before it was like, you if you raped your wife, it wasn't rape. Some marriage ceremonies still talk about like the wife being a possession in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's cringy when you're when you're at the wedding and you're like, you're agreeing, you're agreeing to this. You're you're okay with this? Yeah. Anywho, please continue. Sorry, I just thought that was a, a good point. The fact that he was like, it's fine that I, what I'm doing. She's my wife. Right. Well, he says that they were making up. So I I believe he he was like, oh, we're consensually doing something in the back seat. But upon further investigation, thankfully these cops weren't just like, oh, okay, good night. Yeah. They're like, hmm, what's going on? So upon further investigation, they see that there is a woman in the back of the car. Her name was Tanya Jackson, but she was nude, beaten, bleeding from the head, and she was almost like choking on her own blood the way that they described it. And her head area was smashed into the floorboard of the car. So clearly, you know, his story was not true. Wow. Luckily, she was okay. They they were able to get her treatment and she lived. Good, good. One small positive here, because there's not a lot of them. Yeah. He was arrested without any resistance, and he was taken to the hospital to have his DNA collected. 
So Little was then charged and convicted for the attacks of both women, which you're like, freaking finally, he was literally caught in the act. This is it. You know, wash your hands of it. We're done. And I'm going to continue and just say, no, that's not what happened here. So at the trial, Tanya admitted that she had had a drink before the trial because she was nervous. And I can't even imagine what she was going through, right? You're going to face the person that did this to you. And when you get on the stand, you're going to be on trial. Right? It's, yeah. You know that it's very likely that you'll be treated disrespectfully. Plus, you're about to be re-traumatized. Exactly. Yeah. So I get it, but it's not a good thing to do before trial either. But I get why. Then whether Laura was raped was called into question because it did come out that she was also working as a sex worker, which again hurts my heart because she did not ask to be abducted into this car. Yeah. But the way that law enforcement and prosecutors were interviewed surrounding this trial was a little odd. I feel like they were leaving some stuff out and I couldn't find anything from the actual trial other than, you know, the end result, unfortunately. But anyways, so here's where Little's alibi comes into play. Little's counsel called a woman to the stand who said that her and Little were in a relationship. She spoke very well of him. And then she also came across very respectful. It's sad that this this woman who traveled with him, who, you know, they they stole things, they traveled the, the country to live, got more respect than the two girls who were attacked. Yeah, that's appalling. So, of course, they're like, well, she's respectful. She speaks very well. Sure. Because he was caught in the act is my only reason I could see. He was sentenced, but he was only sentenced to four years. And then on top of that, he only served two and a half for good behavior. Realistically, is it because they didn't have a body because these poor women survived that they're just like, they're survivors. He didn't really do anything that bad, right? They live. Like, what else do you want? Look, how many times have you heard a woman who was raped and they say about the, the man who raped her, but he had his whole life ahead of him. You're ruining his life. He had such a promising future, right? Like you hear that type of verbiage when you talk about rape victims and it's just it's not seen as what it actually is. It wasn't only rape. Mm hmm. It was rape and he intended to kill both these women. Yep. And it's not it's not seen in the repercussions that he was given. No. Two and a half years in prison. They didn't care. No. When I first watched the documentary, my jaw dropped because I was like, two and a half years. There's two women that you intended to kill and everyone's just like, they lived. Like, what else do you want from us? He won't do it again. Yeah. He only did it like, you know, a few nights in between, right? Yeah, he's reformed. That two and a half years really helped him. Okay. Anyway, so he ended up being released in February of 1987. So the district attorney said that the case was the most dissatisfying case of his entire career, which, yeah, I, I feel it for him. Fair. <laughs> and this is one of the quotes from the documentary where I was like, "Ugh, that's so sad. When they sentenced him, he said, when he gets out again and he will get out, he will continue killing. And he was absolutely correct. Yeah. And he told everyone, this is what's going to happen. And they were just like, eh, yeah, four years will do. That'll stop him. I actually don't think that they cared whether he stopped. No, they just didn't want to deal with him. And they didn't care about who he was killing. Well, yeah, that's probably more it. Well, Lori, she kept this a secret. So like the details of her attack, she kept it a secret from her family for a very long time. Man. 
And she said that the light sentencing that he received made her feel worthless. I could see that. Yeah, it doesn't matter what he did to me. No one cares. I mean, it went to a court of law and they were just like, yeah and she you know did her part as best she could and it didn't matter yeah yeah her story gets me when she talks yeah so this is the one itty bitty tiny little thing that was good that came out of this his dna that they collected at that hospital was added to codis after Lori's case and Lori went on to study psychology and criminal justice after her attack. And she has a family. Oh. And when she was talking about her family, it made me just happy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a terrible thing to survive. You know, like surviving and like carrying on, I feel like is heroic in and of itself. If you experience something like that. So let's move forward a little bit more. We're moving into 1989 and we're in Los Angeles. So in August of 1989, Audrey Nelson's body was found in a dumpster. She had been severely beaten and her stomach had been crushed. There were clear indications that she had fought back by scratching her attacker. So the next month, in September of 1989, Guadalupe Avadaca was found surrounded by trash with strangulation marks on her neck. DNA was collected from Guadalupe and DNA was also collected from Audrey. But the murders both occurred five years before DNA testing was revolutionized. So these were all in a very small area. Yes. You would think that if you were the police officer collecting this data and information, that's a small area, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that, but again, they, they just thought overdose or who knows what happened. So in 2012, the LAPD entered the data that they had collected in both Audrey and Guadalupe's murders through CODIS, and they found a match to Samuel Little. DNA was collected from Audrey's fingernails and from fluids that were left on Guadalupe's shirt. And that's the DNA they would eventually run through CODIS. The LAPD then found a third unsolved murder where Samuel Little's DNA was a match. It was the 1987 murder of Carol Elford. Her body had been found in an alley one mile from Guadalupe's. Such a small area of women being found. Yeah. You would think they would go, hmm, a lot of women are dead around here. This seems strange. Well, and for Carol, hers was 87 mm-hmm. and Audrey and Guadalupe were two years later. So he probably made a nice little circle back around back to the L.A. area. Yeah. It was like, I'll pluck another grape, right? Ugh. Because I got away with it again. Oof. It's sickening. It's horrible. It really is. And they had to sit. Think of their families. They had to sit from 89 all the way to 2012 for them to go. Finally, we have the person who did this. They're actually the reason he was finally caught for good. Yes. And it's all because of DNA evidence years later, which reminds you of other ones. Yeah. Yeah. And recently, who'd we just talk about where DNA evidence came full circle? The murder of K-Day by James Dye. And we talked about them in our second True Crime Digest. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice that years later we're finding these people, but also I just think of the families sitting and waiting, you know, for that long. Yeah. And fortunately for the murders of Guadalupe, Audrey, and Carol, Little was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's where we found more of his confessions. Yes. But between all of this, from 87 and 89, where he killed these women, in 1994, he was still killing. So 
In February of 1994, the body of a woman was found in a vacant lot next to a fence. At first, police were having a hard time identifying the body because of the level of decomposition, but her fingerprints were matched to Denise, so her name was Denise Brothers. There was no forensic evidence found on the body, but her cause of death was ruled a strangulation. One of the police officers working the case, Sergeant Snow Robertson, knew the family, and he did everything he could to try to find out who murdered her. And can you imagine, like, working a case and then being like, oh my gosh, I know these people. At one point, here's where kind of hurts my heart again. Little was brought in because witnesses ID'd him, but he said that they had sex and that he didn't hurt her. He consented to a search of his vehicle and a polygraph. He was later released. I want to touch on his car real quick because his traveling alibi is what I'm going to call her. She was said to have cleaned his car several times between this, where something would happen and she would clean up the car really nice. And so he was very confident that they weren't going to find anything. So I'm assuming that's why he's just like, yeah, sure, search whatever you want. Do you think that she enjoyed his killing as well? I think it was a convenience thing because from what I understand about the relationship is they would travel together. They would steal things to survive. They would, you know, steal things to sell. And that's how they made their money to be able to stay in multiple places. And I think it was just, you do your thing. I won't ask questions. I'll do mine thing. Don't ask questions. This is just for us to get by. I don't know. I want to think that that was it, I guess. Maybe it's just me hoping to see the best in someone. I guess here's my thing, right? I love my husband. But if the car comes back and it's clear that somebody was murdered, I will be asking questions. I will be asking a lot of questions. And Mm -hmm. I have way more loyalty to him than I would imagine you would your crime partner. You know what I mean? Like anybody can steal stuff and sell stuff. Maybe not well. Yeah, because technically, wouldn't she have fit into his victim pool? You know, like his go-to? Yeah, we don't know why she was there. But I do hold her responsible because if she hadn't lied about being an alibi, then many people would still be alive. Yeah. And at one point, too, one of his other alibis that traveled with him spoke up. And then guess what? He disappeared before the trial. Don't like that. Don't like that. But back to Denise Brothers. So he was released. Again, he was pulled in, released, as usual, got away with it. As he do. Robertson entered the data about the murder into VICAP. 20 years later, an FBI crime analyst, Christy Palazzo, and DNA scientist, Dr. Angela Williamson, worked together to find similar cases to those that Little had already been charged for. They are some kick-ass women, by the way. Like, I want to, like, hug them and high-five them. Yeah. Watching them speak and they're like, I feel like they're like Garcia in their little, like, cubicle together. And they're like, hey, check out this one. And she's like, wait a minute. I I remember a case I saw 14 years ago. Hang on. And like, I feel like that's the level of what they were doing. Watching them speak, I was like, I want to know more about them. Where's their TV show? Because I just want to watch what they do for a living. Palazzo worked out a timeline of where Little had been over the years and figured out his victim type, the method of killing, everything. Kind of put it all together. Garcia did it. That in and of itself seems extremely difficult because he bounced back and forth. He was probably doing a lot of like paying in cash and things like that. So I'm sure that was a very, very difficult timeline to run. And what's interesting, too, is when they originally wanted to arrest him in Los Angeles, they couldn't find him. 
No. And imagine he just had his car. He traveled around. There's no way of easily finding him. And so I believe the, the LAPD reached out to the FBI and they found that his social security checks were being deposited in Louisville, Kentucky. And so they traced him that way. They traced him like from his like legitimate money that was coming in. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. That wouldn't have even occurred to me that you are going to go find this senior citizen serial killer. <laughs> Right. And doesn't that just like hurt your heart that he went through, did all of this for years and years and years, thought he got away with it, cashing in on Social Security. And I believe he was living in a homeless shelter, right? Yeah. Just blows my mind that he got through it that long. Not that this is a new thing. We're learning about a lot of killers from back in this era that are being caught nowadays and having to face what they've done. But it's sickening to know that one, there's multiple of these guys out there, right? And you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, that is that's a lot like Joseph James D'Angelo, who was found from ancestral DNA, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just blowing my mind how many of them lately. And by lately, I mean within the last few years. Yeah, I love the reckoning though. There's like these old nasty men who are like, I got away with it. And no, it's coming round the bend eventually. So Palazzo, or in my head, I see her as Garcia, noticed that many of the same variables overlapped with the Denise brothers case when she was putting together all of the information. Around the same time, Texas Ranger James Holland had heard about Samuel Little and had contacted the FBI. Ranger Holland was well known for his ability to draw confessions out of murderers. This is the one we were talking about in the beginning, by the way. Transphobic, but good at getting confessions. Yeah, he gets on their level when he talks to not saying that that not that comment, but everything else, the way that he he's able to get confessions out of people is exactly he he tries to kind of have something in common with them. And he he brings some offerings and stuff too later. So Palazzo and Dr. Williamson suggested that Denise Brothers may be one of Samuel Little's victims because the murder was in Texas. That was how they like got him into the case, right? Because they were like, oh, here's a Texas one for you to look at. Because they had to have a reason to bring him in. Exactly. Yeah. So Officer Holland recorded the confessions that he got from Samuel Little. And the two developed kind of an interesting bond. Little called Ranger Holland Jimmy, and he called Little Sammy. And like I mentioned, Holland would bring him goods, you know, like to to get him to talk. He'd bring him like pizza, Dr. Pepper. There was a whole list of random things that he liked. And he's also the one that got Little the art set so that he could draw the victims. Yeah. And because he has a photographic memory, he can remember what each of them looks like. And he's pretty decent at art. So it's a decent likeness of the women that he had murdered. The sick, horrible thing about it is as he's drawing them, he's like reliving these murders. Yes. So you kind of ask yourself, like, do we give him these supplies and allow him to continue doing this so that we can get justice for the families that are sitting there waiting or for the people that don't know where their family member is and don't even know that they're dead yet, right? Or do we not let him do that because then he's like reliving his sick fantasies? I think that he was going to relive it either way. And at least this way, some people can get some closure. Like he was going to be a sick fuck either way. But he's enjoying himself. He's finally behind bars. And he's still enjoying himself. And that just made me so angry that this guy always wins. 
Yeah, fair, fair. Yeah, yeah. And so like Amanda said, 60 victims have been identified of the 93. And that's in in large part due to some of these drawings. I will note that Samuel Little did pass away last year. So in 2020, at the age of 80 years old. Woo! Another good thing about 2020. It, it's good, but then also it, you kind of wish that he was alive for when they're identifying some more of these victims so that the families could get a little bit more information if they needed it. I mean, they, they have it on record, all of the ones that he's described. So I, I'm sure a lot of it's there. But what if there's another question that comes up and now they can't ask it? And it, that that's also partially why I'm so angry that he got to live out all of his life and then just spent the last part of it behind bars where he should have been answering to these families during that time, you know. But what is interesting, though, is that we've still got 33 victims that are unaccounted for. And so folks are still investigating this. If you go to the FBI's website, you can see the photos of who's unidentified. We'll have a link to that on our website, as always. And then also, we'll have them in our True Crime Digest as we continue on as more people come forward thinking that like perhaps this is their family member. But in February of 2021, an article was released about a woman who was potentially one of the victims that was unidentified. And so although this came out in February, police did talk to him before he passed. So Zena Jones disappeared in 1990 in July. Her sister, Vicki Weddington, was sure that her sister wouldn't have just up and left because she had a five-year-old daughter. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah, but because she had a drug addiction, police were like, she's a runaway. Oh my gosh. Right? When the images of the women that he had murdered were on the news, Weddington recognized one that looked like her sister, Zena. Just finding a picture of your missing sister on a victim list or a victim caricature in a sense. Yeah. And it's horrible, but also some closure, you know, like knowing. So the Memphis County District Attorney's Office and the Memphis police met with Samuel Little in prison. Samuel Little said he had strangled a woman on Crump Boulevard in Memphis in the mid 80s to early 90s. And then she was dumped in a lake. His description of the woman that was pulled from a specific lake matched the clothing perfectly. And I believe they're still determining whether it's her. I mean, if he described her, his memory, he knew. I think when when they talked to him a lot of the time, he couldn't remember years, but he could remember distinct things about the, the women. And this story right here is the reason why I'm mad that he's dead, though. Because they did go back and they asked him follow-up questions. There's going to be some where they're going to go, you know, this little piece of detail is still up in the air and he'd be the one to be able to answer it. You're right. Yeah, you're right. That's true. That's very true. And I mean, I find in this case, Samuel Little is a monster, right? Like hands down, no question. But it's also monstrous what he got away with. He took a flashlight and just pointed it like, here are all of the weak spots in your justice system, and I'm going to take advantage of them and kill for years and years and years and years. And get caught sometimes. And get caught, and you just won't care. It's disgusting. It is disgusting. So this is Samuel Little. (laughs) I'm surprised that he's not talked about more, because I, I remember when he died, it was all over the news. You saw it. But I don't hear his name when people talk about many serial killers. And he is one of the absolute worst. Yeah, I mean, he's America's most prolific serial killer. And the fact that people don't know who he is, it blows my mind. Like I was talking to like a few different friends who are like very interested in true crime and know a lot. And I was like, do you know who Samuel Little is? And they were like, no. And it wasn't surprising, right? Like I don't think it was until I was like researching for like show topics that I came across him. Then I was like, why aren't we all talking about this? 
why isn't this pushing for, you know, parole reform, sentencing reform? Like, there's so many things that you should look at this and go, this system isn't right. It's broken. Exactly. No, that's that's absolutely true. And I will say, you know, we've we've come some way since a couple of the sentences that he received, but not all that far. Yeah, not far enough. Not far enough. Yeah. So we'll post some of his pictures of the women. Tell us what you think about his luck. What are your thoughts? Now, before we end the episode, we do want to touch on a couple of housekeeping things. For those that have written us reviews, we love you. Thank you so much for what you're doing for us. It helps us grow. For those that are thinking of leaving a review, we would love if you'd take a few minutes and do so. You can leave reviews on iTunes or on Facebook. And if you do choose to leave a review, please take a screenshot and email us your address. We'd be happy to send you a True Creep sticker. Our email address is truecreepspod.com at gmail.com. Yeah. Also, we recently started a Patreon. We've got four different tiers starting at a dollar. And if you're one of our patrons, you get access to the Bat Bonfire, which is our Patreon-only Facebook group. Yep. And just today, they got a little insight on one of our episodes before anyone else. Just saying. Bat Bonfire. Yeah. Yeah. The Bat Bonfire is going to see the future sometimes. <laughs> but so, plus there's also some really fun perks in some of the higher tiers. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to our website, truecreeps.com, and click the Patreon link. We'll see you next week. Thanks for creeping with us. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cool Creep. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 